Tonight is uh, November 1st, 2017. You know what's a lot harder than it looks? Is, uh, is coming up with a title sermon. <laughs> um, you know, I've gone to lunch with our pastors before. We're talking about a scripture or, or some subject. And like by the end of it, they got this really good, funny, quirk little title sermon just right there off the top of their head. And I can't do that. Uh, you know, I think one of my all-time favorite sermon titles was one that Pastor Wade did earlier this year. It was uh, Get Joash in the Right Place. <laughs> that was a good one. About, uh, you know, trying to find out where King Joash was and when he was actually the king of, uh, of Judah over there. Um, well, I actually got my sermon title from a t-shirt. So my wife has uh, developed a new hobby of ordering Christian t-shirts online. <laughs> and so our computer gets lots of uh, advertisements for Christian t-shirts. <laughs> so as I'm trying to think about what I wanted to title this message, an advertisement pops up, and it was a t-shirt that read, God bless this hot mess. <laughs> so that's the sermon title. <laughs> <laughs> Brought to you by ChristianLiving.com. <laughs> oh, all right, we're going to have fun tonight. <laughs> um, I'd like to approach this message a lot like, uh, like Pastor Eric did on Wednesday night with that message freely. Uh, what an amazing message. Um, just so encouraging, so uplifting. Uh, but I'd like to kind of take the same assumption that I'm talking to a body of believers that loves the Lord, right? Um, I'm speaking to true children of God, true heirs of Christ. So that's the vein that I'd like to take this message tonight. It's not somebody that's going to take something like this and um, use it as a license to sin, because I know that's not who I'm talking to. Um, so I read a quote that really spoke to me here recently, and, and when I read it, it was the exact thing I needed to hear at the time. It was, uh, God is too good to be unkind. He is too wise to be confused. If I cannot trace his hand, I can always trust his heart. So if I cannot trace his hand, if I can't necessarily see what, what God might be doing in a particular situation or it just doesn't make sense to me, no matter what, I can always trust the heart of my Heavenly Father. Amen? Amen? So the Lord's been speaking to me, to my family, about these certain things. And, and one thing, I, I still get surprised every time, but I know that when the Lord is, is speaking and trying to teach and impress something upon me, uh, without fail, He tends to be doing it uh, to the body at large. So I'm going to just trust and share a little bit of our family's heart and what He's been speaking to us, uh, and trust that the Holy Spirit will be able to minister and uh, encourage to your hearts as well. So, lately I've been asking God to, uh, for some different kind of blessings in my life. Um, I've been asking him to bless my perspective on things. Um, instead of asking him to just bless items on my list or, or somebody else's list or things that are going on, I'm asking, Lord, will you please just help me see things the way that you're seeing things? Because... Far too often, I know that I've tried to get God to, to see things the way I see things. And really, all he's ever wanted was for me to be able to see things like he sees them. Um, I think that's one of the most powerful things that we can do as a body of believers is we just ask God to see things like he sees them. And I, I believe that's part of maturing in Christ moving from the way I've always seen things to the way God sees things. Because really, this is through your perspective. And the way you see things, it could be a prison. Or, rightly, perspective can be the very thing that sets you free. Amen. You know, it, your perspective can be the very things that confine you to the way things are. Or it could be the way that releases you to the way thing that God intends your life to be. Um, Nick, he gave an excellent message on Monday night about the contrasting a wise man 
versus a foolish man. And he described one characteristic of a fool as the fool of folly yields folly. So he just, he framed it perfectly. He basically explained that foolishness without a change is only going to yield more foolishness. And I'm convinced that that is one of the many uh, benefits of coming together as a body of believers like we do together is you are making an investment in your perspective. Because I think many of us, and maybe many of us here tonight, we're locked in ways of living that are a result of an incorrect perspective. But the Word of God has the ability to gut your perspective. To, to gut your perspective of, of maybe past haunts, and, uh, past memories that may haunt you, or just future fears that could intimidate you, or, or just, for me, personal insecurities that could just damage you or cripple you. But see, the Word of God can put you in proper perspective of all that He says that you are and all that He says that you can have because you're connected to Him. Because if you realize that you're connected to God, that changes everything. You know, that's why when I lift my hands in worship, I feel strength coming to every single weak area of my life. And, it, and in that moment, my life didn't change. My perspective changed. And then over time, if I get my perspective right, my life is going to line up as well. So turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him... How much he must suffer for my name. How's that for a prophecy? <laughs> I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. You know, that seems to be a common theme in the Bible. Oftentimes we'll, we'll receive prophecies of, you know, health and power and wealth and blessings, but you rarely hear a prophecy spoken over somebody that tells them how much they're going to suffer for the name of Jesus. Now, I know from this opening verse it might not sound like this is going to be an encouraging word, but I promise it is. <laughs> um, because suffering and hardship, it's, it's going to come for the believers, but your perspective on that hardship will ultimately shape your identity. Amen. So let's go to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. So listen, there's going to be uh, one thing that I really want to drive home tonight. Um, there's one point that I want to work really hard at just unpacking, okay? Here's my point. You ready? God is at work in the mess, okay? God is at work in the mess. Can we say that together as a family? God is at work in the mess. All right, Genesis chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 1. It says, This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. So Noah had three sons, according to Scripture. And really, all people on earth today can trace their origins back to one of these three men. And really, all of us back to Noah, the one man. Uh, and you know, as I was studying, this chapter is actually unparalleled amongst ancient texts in explaining the origins of all mankind. Uh, later historical documents will refer back to Genesis 10 as kind of the authoritative record of how the earth was settled. Um, that's why this chapter is called the Table of Nations. Acts, uh, we don't have to go there, but Acts 17, 26 says, From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries of their lands. So tonight we're not going to spend a whole lot of time digging into this chapter, but what you will see is that in Noah's three sons, the line of Japheth uh, will spread across the earth, and they will fill, uh, be the Indo-European people. 
and the line of Ham will spread across and be the African peoples. And then the line of Shem formed the Semitic peoples where we get the line of Christ. Um, and we know that Shem is the seed line that, that God's promises rest that is going to be that seed that crushes Satan's head prophesied back in Genesis 3 after the fall. So there's just one, two important notes I want to take from this chapter. First, you notice that Japheth and Ham are actually excluded from the honor of carrying forward the promised seed. Uh, you know, only Shem is permitted that honor and that blessing. Um, in the same way, Shem's children, only one of them, all the way until we get to Christ. That's why Matthew and, uh, and Luke give us those genealogies precisely so that they can um, trace the birth of Jesus back to Abraham and he could be acclaimed to that promised seed. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the Lord didn't care about Ham and Japheth, right? Um, in Genesis 9:27, Noah prophesies over Japheth, and he says, May God extend Japheth's territory, and may Japheth live in the tents of Shem. So while the promised seed will come through the line of Seth, God is prophesying through Noah that his other sons will come and live into the tents of Shem. Um, this word and this passage just really encouraged me as I was going through it. Because, you know what? God didn't choose this uh, picture-perfect family moment to reveal this very important plan through Noah. I mean, there was some real family drama going on in this passage. Uh, Noah is drunk. He's naked. One of his three sons spreads his shame by telling the entire family. And uh, I don't know, if y'all are like me, oftentimes I, I feel like I'm failing at home. Like, I just, I'll, I'll be consumed with these thoughts that my kids, they're not well-behaved enough. Or I'm not pouring into my wife enough. Or, or the house is too messy. Or whatever reasons and whatever lies that may be coming in that says, there's just no way that God could bless this house. This passage was an encouragement to me because the Lord was trying to tell me, listen, I can work and I can speak through you despite your imperfections. I'm not going to ignore those imperfections. They're going to be refined, but I can still work and through work, work you through them during those imperfections. He reminded me that God is at work in the mess. Let's turn to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. I mean, if you think about it, if God wasn't at work in the mess, he would never be at work at all. That's really all he's got to deal with. So Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple... And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So Malachi is promising that the Messiah is going to come and that he's going to show up in whom they delight. So in this passage, the people of Israel are looking for a savior because they've, they've been oppressed. They've been put into exile. Now they've come out of exile. Their walls have been rebuilt. The, the temple has been rebuilt. And so now they are longing and they are yearning for their enemies to be put under their feet so that, that God could establish a kingdom among them. So as Malachi is speaking, that's what they're looking for. That's where their hopes are lying. And Malachi says, it's coming. But then in verse 2, it takes a bit of a strange turn. It says, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? So the object of delight is on its way. The covenant is going to be fulfilled. Your enemies are going to be vanquished. But who can stand at his coming? Sounds a bit bleak. And as we continue in verse 2, it says, For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. So what the Lord spoke to me here, it may not look like it from the surface, but I see here the love of God. 
And this might not sound like the love of God, but look, let's look at verse 2 again. It says, For he, the coming Christ, is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in in former years. So I know oftentimes we like to think of the love of God as, you know, he forgives us and he is for us and he is not against us and and he sings over us like the prophet Zephaniah says. And, and all of those are true and they're right. But is it also not true that in his deep and abiding love for us, he is like a refining fire? Yes, amen. And he will yeah. burn away those impurities and he will wash away that uncleanliness. So in God's deep and abiding love for us, yes, he's going to send you joy, but from time to time... He's going to walk you out into a desert. From time to time, he's going to remind you of how desperate you are for him and how bad you really need him. He says, from time to time, in my great and abiding love for you, I'm going to show you how little power you actually have and how much I actually have, and that is a good thing. And so as you're going through this refining fire, it could appear unloving to the untrained eye. But as you look at it from God's perspective, it's the most loving thing that he could do for us because it is God's desire for none to perish but for all to become to repentance. So he allows us to go through the refining fire so that when he does draw near for judgment, we're not going to be a subject of his wrath. We won't be consumed Look what Malachi says in verse 6. It says, Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed because you went through the refining fire. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 19. Proverbs chapter 19, uh, verse 18. We talk about this refining fire. It says, discipline your children, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to their death. Listen, the Lord is not going to be a willing party to your death. So as a child of God, the right perspective, a heavenly perspective is key when we're going through our own refining fires. Let's go to Acts chapter 16. We're going to spend a lot of time here in Acts chapter 16 tonight. The Lord really encouraged me in this, in this passage here and in this story. Acts chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 1. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer whose father was Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who had lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they grew daily in numbers. So God is referred to as the refining fire, right? Our God and his relationship with us is one of refinement. And so as we think about this initiating love of God towards us who are sinners, God was reaching in to save us. And what we see in this initiating love of God is he not only desires to save us, but transform us and pull out of us those beauties that we oftentimes may not even see in ourselves. I see God doing that in Timothy's life right here. You know, I get the impression uh, from Paul's letters to Timothy that he may have had an issue with self-confidence. Maybe he had, um, despite a calling on his life and believers speaking well of him, he may have had a bit of a weak stomach. Maybe he felt torn 
between two worlds because his mother was a Jew and his father was a Greek. And I can almost guarantee there was a bit of a scandal when Paul chose to take Timothy on his journey. And that little phrase, for they all knew his father was a Greek, it speaks volumes. You can almost hear the little whispers, all the little busybodies. Look at that. He's taking that half Gentile with him. Doesn't he know that salvation comes from the Jews? I can't believe he's taking Timothy. You know, and that probably is not going to help Timothy's self-confidence. But the Bible is clear that God sees us as incredibly valuable. Which is why we are not to treat ourselves cheaply. God does not see you as cheap. The very blood of his son was shed. The blood which is more precious than anything this world could possibly offer. Can you put 1 Peter 1, 18-19 on the screen? It says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, hounded down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Because the gospel is about God initiating not only your ransom and your rescue, but also about purifying your lives, redeeming us from that empty way of life, changing our perspective from the way we've always seen things to the way he sees things. All right, uh, let's pick up back in Acts 16, starting in verse 6. It says, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. Now, I've got to wonder here if this is a little frustrating for Paul. I mean, Paul has these ambitions and he has these plans to go to these different areas, and they're not selfish ambitions. I mean, his desire is to strengthen the church and to further the gospel. When I'm on a position by the Lord, I know there's all kinds of emotions and, uh, and thoughts running through my head. You know, as I'm, as I'm going through the refining fire, and Jesus keeps telling me no, I'm prone to think that he's punishing me. Or I begin to second-guess myself. Well, maybe I shouldn't have brought Timothy along. Um, and we face this uncertainty, or the Lord just flat-out says no, and we often feel like we're being punished. Difficulty arises, or, or finances collapse, or a business dream or dies. We feel like we're being punished. Okay, let's just uh, let's just get honest here, so that the Lord can work. How many of you are aware of some things in your life that the Lord would probably want to punish? We already know. We know human nature enough. We know ourselves enough that there's probably some areas in our life that God would want to punish. So for me, the default. When anything goes bad is, I knew it, Alex. Loves me freely, delights in me, all that nonsense. How about now? I knew, I knew this was coming. I knew I should have tried harder. I knew I should have worked more. But listen, the discipline of God is never meant to devour or destroy his children, but rather to reconcile them and to reset them. The Bible is very clear that you were saved at your worst, right? It wasn't at your best that God saved you. We all know the verse, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't like you cleaned yourself all up. 
And God kind of took a look and like, okay. I like what you've done with the place. I see there's a little something to work for. Okay, you can come in. Come on. No, it was confused, battered, spiritually sick. The Bible says we were in the muck and the mire. We did not evolve and crawl out of the muck and the mire. The God of the Bible stuck his hands, his holy, pure hands, into the muck and the mire, and he pulled us out. And he put a new song in our mouth. And ever since then, he's been wiping off the muck and the mire. And he's not grown weary. He has not lost patience. He doesn't want to mulligan on you because you can't figure it out. So, yeah, some of what you're experiencing might be the discipline of God, but do not let that discipline be perceived as heavy-handed or harsh. Isn't that what immature children do? If you have kids, I've got three of them. Sometimes when you say no to a child, they they feel like you just ruined their lives. Now, I mean, I love, I love my kids. I, I love them. They, they consume my prayers. <laughs> Earnest to see them shaped by the gospel. And I say no. I say no to them a lot. And I say no to them because I love them so much. You know, and I'll send them to their room to think about that because I love them so much. I'll spank their bottoms because I love them so much. <laughs> I mean, I don't enjoy it. I don't take delight in it. But because of my deep and abiding love for them, I will engage them. I will take things out of their hands. I will say no to them. I will send them to their room. And to them, the perspective is, this isn't fair. I can't believe this. This is all I've ever wanted. This is going to ruin my entire life. (laughs) These are actual quotes from my kids. (laughs) This is the pointy hat at Disneyland. (laughs) But listen, just because something's been taken out of your hands, just because you've been sent to your room, just because there seems to be a loss of something that you perceived to be yours does not make God and his discipline cruel. And, you know, discipline from God is not always because you've done something wrong. Um, it could be because he is leading you into what is right. Like you can't just check off all the boxes and control the discipline of God. A lot of what's going on is this, is a script that just kind of runs underneath your lives, and the Lord is running the script, and you may be totally unaware of it until God does give you that, that thorn in the flesh, right? Um, that life, that struggle, not of ease, but of trial and of tribulation, where we're longing for the Spirit of God to work in us. We see this script here in Paul, with Paul. Let's pick up in verse 9. See, because it's because of what they didn't get to do that they ended up where they needed to be to accomplish what God had put in them. It says, During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So the reason that they ended up in Philip, Philippi or Macedonia was they were trying to go to the province of Asia, but the spirit of Jesus was telling them not to go there. And I think this was a word because if you've been upset about something that didn't happen for you or someone who didn't like you or some type of rejection in your life, Rejection can oftentimes just be redirection. When we begin to see it that way, you can begin to see some of the heartbreak in your life is really God just moving you into a position 
of some of the blessings that he desires for you that you did not even know to pray for yet. I don't remember Paul talking about uh, Macedonia or Philippi prior to this vision. Let's continue on verse 11. It says, From Troas we put out to sea, and we sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down, and we began to speak to the women who had gathered there. You know, so often in life, opportunities and people will come across your path uh, that was totally outside of what you expected or how you felt God revealed it to you. And look what we have here. Paul, he had a vision of a man in Macedonia, right? And it's very likely as they're approaching this region of Macedonia, they're looking for this man, this, this man of peace. And so a couple of important items to note. One, this is an unreached area that they're going to. You know, God's chosen people, the Jews, from the line of Shem, they have no significant presence here. You know, Paul's custom in his other missionary journeys was to go to the synagogue in the Sabbath and teach there. But here, he goes outside the city gates because there's no synagogue in the city. Another interesting item of note is the first place that they go to is all women. Now, we just read that he saw a vision of a man in Macedonia. So it could be tempting for Paul and his partners to uh, just bypass that meeting altogether, you know? It's like, no, this, this is not part of the plan. This is not part of the vision. I, I don't have time to deal with this group of women right now. This is not part of the plan. Say, so I'll just say, don't be surprised if God puts in front of you opportunities that look different than you planned or envisioned. You know, I, I came dangerously close to missing out on the blessing of being Kaysen's dad. Um, because it was so much different than what I expected and how I felt God reveal this adoption journey to us and our family. Uh, you know, when we found out about Kaysen, we were three years into the process of adopting a child from Haiti, and at that time we still hadn't even been matched, and even as today we're still two to three years out from being matched. And, but we were waiting. We felt that's what the Lord said, and so we were waiting patiently. And then one Monday night, Haley and I are on our way to Foundations, and literally out of the blue we get this email from an adoption agency that we weren't even working with. And it said, basically, there's a baby boy in Houston that needs a home. Are you interested? So a couple of weeks earlier, the Lord began to speak to Haley about not holding on too tightly to her teaching job. She was uh, working part-time at Hudson's preschool, and it was the time of the summer where you're starting to, to plan for the upcoming school year and getting ready. And the Lord just began to speak to her, don't hold on too tight to that teaching job. And at the same time, kind of started placing this idea of a baby. And the, this was the words, itty-bitty baby, were actually given to her. So this email came at a very interesting time. Um, but I, I was really struggling with it. Now, Haley, she was ready to turn around and go to the hospital right then. <laughs> but I was struggling because it didn't look like I envisioned. Uh, this was certainly not part of my plan. And I began pushing against it. And I was saying, listen, I don't know if this is from God. This could be kind of a, you know, Hagar, Ishmael type situation. Uh, I just, I really don't want to get out of God's will. Uh, so on the way to foundations, we began praying. And, and over and over again, we were praying for just God's will. Reveal this, Lord. Is this your will? Now, part of the reason I really doesn't want to know if this was God's will, but another part of me was just scared that it was God's will. 
because I was operating out of a sense of fear because it wasn't part of my plan. So we get to foundations, and uh, Pastor Wade is preaching that night. And first thing he does as the teaching starts, he goes over to that whiteboard and he writes, God's will. <laughs> so Haley and I look at each other and like, all right. <laughs> Basically, the, the, the point that Wade drives home is circumcise your heart so that you can be sensitive and open to what the Lord is trying to do in you right now. <laughs> Don't be too stiff. But be flexible and open to what the Lord is telling you right now. <laughs> so Haley looks at me. <laughs> After foundations, we give ourselves two days to pray about it. Uh, and make a decision. And so by Wednesday night after service, we threw our hat in the ring and we said we're interested. And you know, the rest of the week was a crazy up and down roller coaster ride. But eight days after we received that email, we were holding Kason in the hospital and he became our son. just say that but God may have given you a vision for the future but just don't let that cause you to miss out of what he's trying to do in and through you right Amen. now Amen. let's continue on in verse 14 we'll see the, uh, the fruit of looking in front of you right now one of those listening was a woman was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia a dealer in purple cloth she is a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her eyes to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So listen, our God is a God who was, who is, and who is to come. This uh, reminded me of a, a message his brother Linton gave a while back about Always being ready at all times to be used by God, to have your, your spiritual bow and arrow pulled back, ready to release. And when God says release, you release. Our God is the God who was, who is, and who is to come. We cannot forget he is the God who is. He is the God of the present. Because if you only look to the future or you only reflect on the past, you're going to miss out on the Lydia's that God is placing in front of us today. Let's continue uh, in verse 16. It says, Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we met a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are the servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And she kept this up for many days. I believe another incorrect perspective we can have as we are going through the refining fire of God is uh, kind of a hyper-spiritualized, the devil's trying to get me. Uh, now, I'm not going to mock or be at jest at all because I understand we have a real enemy who devours, who seeks to devour us. Spiritual principalities and the demonic, those are real things, spiritual strongholds and chains. And anyone who would mock or belittle those things is a fool. But I would also like to lay before us that what we find on the Bible, on repeat, as these things are more like dogs on a leash than they are just able to wreak havoc at will. Now, you know, if you read the first couple of chapters of Job, uh, you find that the accuser, he has to ask permission to sift Job, and when he does give him permission, he gives him parameters upon what he could do. You know, I love the interaction in Luke 22 where Jesus and Peter are talking. It says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but don't worry, I have prayed for you. You know, I would have read that many times, and uh, I've always kind of wondered about that conversation. <laughs> like, I've, to be honest, I've read it, 
and I think to myself, um, Jesus, can you like just tell him no? <laughs> like, I appreciate the prayers and all, but can you just call him back and say no? I mean, even in, in the Apostle Paul's life, we see this. I mean, he's, he says, because of these surpassingly great revelations, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. So God, in his deep and abiding love for Paul, he gives them this thorn in the flesh. Now, that doesn't sound like a very good gift to me if I don't have the right perspective. I don't know about y'all. Are y'all putting a thorn of flesh on your Christmas list this year? But if you look at it from the right perspective, it's the best gift ever because it's one that keeps Paul humble from these surpassingly great revelations that he was given. It keeps him low. It keeps him dependent upon Christ. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus' first sermon out the gate. Those are the ones who are going to see God. And what's crazy about being a part of this kingdom is you don't have to seek that out. It will find you. But through it all, God is at work in the mess. He's refining. He's moving. And it's, it's not necessarily the enemy. And even if it is the enemy, we can cry out to the Lord and we can plead with God. That did not stop Paul from pleading three times to please take this thorn from his flesh. Three times, but the Lord said, no, I love you. This is staying. My grace is sufficient for you in this weakness. So even if it is the enemy, again, these things are more like dogs on a leash. And they may have a loud bark. And their bite may hurt in the natural realm. But in the spiritual realm, these demonic forces have been disarmed. Can you put Colossians 2.15 on the screen? It says, He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities, and he shamed them publicly in his victory over them at the cross. Let's pick up in verse 18 in Acts. We'll see an example these being a dog on a leash. It says, Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned, at, and turned around and he said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. So again, in the spiritual realm, these spiritual powers have been disarmed. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're not going to try to cause trouble in the natural realm. That's why Jesus tells us, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So we can see some of this um, mess that these spiritual principalities try to cause. It says in verse 19, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates, and they said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into the prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell, and he fastened their feet in the stocks. So another inc incorrect perspective we can have as we're going through this refining fire is we can feel at times like this that we've been abandoned by God. Sometimes, you know, difficulty comes. There's trials, there's tribulations, and we're in the desert, and God, he feels far from us. Our senses are off, and we feel like we've been beaten or put in a spiritual jail cell. You might ask, where are you, God? I mean, our relationships start to break down, and I don't think anybody here is going to say this out loud, but our, our thoughts can begin to deceive us. Mm -hmm. I, 
can't believe this. I can't believe you should do this. Where are you? You could abandon me in this moment of need, in this, in this moment of trial. We feel like we've been in a desert and we're abandoned by God. If you look at it from an incorrect perspective. Let's turn to Hosea chapter 2. Pastor Eric is right. I can't seem to get through a message without going to Hosea. Hosea chapter 2, we're going to start in uh, verse 14. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There, I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Accor a door of hope. There, she will respond to me as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and you will no longer call me my master. You will no longer call me my master. He says, I'm going to take you into the desert. And there, in the desert, you will stop calling me master. And you will start calling me husband. He says, I'm going to take you into those dry lands where you're going to feel parched. And the sun's going to be hot. And you're going to feel dehydrated. And you're going to feel weak. And you're going to feel abandoned. And it's in that place that you may know him more intimately. And that you can love him more deeply. And your life is going to be far more conformed to what he has for you. So from time to time, he's going to pull us away from those idols. He'll pull us away from those things that we're prone to worship. Because he knows that what we need is to worship him. He may pull you into that desert season, but he does not intend to keep you there indefinitely. But even when you are in that desert season, he is worthy of your praise. Because when you can praise God through the trials and through the tribulations and the pains and the difficulties of your life, you become a vessel that God can do a powerful, powerful work in. Let's go back to Acts 16. We're going to pick up in verse 25. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And at once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. Praise breaks chains. One of the messages that I see here in this chapter is that God can show up anywhere. He can show up anywhere. Have you, ex- have you forgotten to expect his arrival? Are you like me and there's areas in your life where you know and you have faith that God is going to get involved? But then there's other areas in life where you haven't even considered if God is going to get involved. Now I look at all the different people here in this chapter, all these different variables, and God showed up in their life. I mean, we've got all these, these different people. Are, are you the Lydia of the story? Are you, are you wealthy? Are you young and inexperienced? Are you the Timothy of this story? Are you decent, rational, logical? Do you have all your ducks in a row? Are you Luke, the writer of this story? Who are you in this story? Because God wants to show up in your story. 
Or do you fall into the improper thinking that God wouldn't show up for other people? That God, he wouldn't show up in that situation. You know, it's poor. It's wealthy. It's well known. It's not known. All these reasons that we conclude God wouldn't show up there. But the word of God is telling us otherwise. You know, some will tell you that God is only for the poor, but Lydia's eyes were opened. And some will tell you that he wants to bless you and make you wealthy and wise, but the slave girl, she was set free from demonic oppression. So the message is loud and clear. God wants to show up and get involved in every area of your life. Have we forgotten that? Is there a space and a place in your heart right now where you forgot to anticipate God's arrival? You know, we can have all the faith in the world that God's going to show up and he can heal somebody's physical body. But we forgot the, fit, forgot the fact that that same God who can heal your physical body, he can heal your broken heart. Why can't there be reconciliation in your relationships? Why can't there be forgiveness? Why can't there be peace? Why can't there be joy? Why can't we start to anticipate that if God is going to show up in wealthy people and slave girls and the average Joe Jailer, he can show up and get involved in every single situation and circumstance and space in your life. What's that space that you're thinking about right now? What's that space? God wants to get involved. Let's anticipate his arrival and his involvement. I feel like God, he could be shaking foundations that we are standing on as a way of breaking our chains chains that we have made for decades or years. Because we all, we all have chains that the Lord wants to break and that we want the Lord to break. But we may prefer that he comes over with the key, right? And he just inserts that key into that chain and they'll come off nice and neat and you'll be set free. But maybe like the Jailer and Philippi, God desires to set you free from those chains by shaking the very foundation that you've stood on your entire life. Let's pick it back up in verse 29. It says, The jailer called for lights, and he rushed in, and he fell trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he thought, then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and his entire household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and they had set a meal before him and he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, Release those men. So the jailer told Paul, The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can go. Now you can leave. Go in peace. We see right here that praise breaks chains. See, but Paul and Silas, they were free before their chains fell off. The reason that they were able to praise when they could not move and able to hope when they could not see is that their perspective was not connected to their pain. Their perspective was connected to their purpose. See, because the gospel had never reached Europe before. Up until this point, the gospel 
hadn't reached beyond the Middle East. And God was setting the message free. But to set the message free, he had to have Paul and Silas get locked up. So when you look at it out of context, it looks like Paul and Silas have been forgotten about. But they didn't see it that way. They saw a higher purpose. They had a greater perspective because they kept it in context of their calling or their purpose. So while the foundations of the prisons were being shaken here, the foundations of faith was being laid on the continent of Europe. This was not only God fulfilling his word to Paul about being a light to the Gentiles. This was God speaking and fulfilling the word he spoke to Noah 2,500 years prior about Japheth coming into the tents of Shem and sharing in his blessings. This is about God fulfilling his purpose and plan that was promised before the beginning of time. Listen, the word of God will not return to him empty. It will accomplish what God desires and it will achieve the purpose for which he sent it. God has a plan. If you don't know which way to go, seek him. If you're confused, seek him. If you're tired of waiting, seek him. Because I know a lot of us, we have a picture, but we can't see a plan. So we're wondering if it's going to produce anything. But God says, I have a plan. And Jesus Christ, he put up the payment for the plan. And he who begun a good work in you will continue it until the day of redemption. You say, this is a mess. God is at work in the mess. Our foundations are being shaken in our lives. But God is laying a foundation for greater faith. So my message is, don't lose heart. If you've come in here weary... My hope is that you would leave encouraged. Because your suffering and your difficulty is not an example of God's punishment, of his demonic authority, or abandonment. In fact, the writers of Hebrews says it this way, God disciplines all of his children. And anyone who is not disciplined by the Lord is not a legitimate child. So congratulations. You have a loving father who loves you enough not to give you everything you think you need. So I'm about to close out here. I'll let my brothers close us up however they see fit. But I would like to end the message with the quote that we started. It was a great quote by Charles Spurgeon. You know that Charles Spurgeon suffered and wrestled with depression in his life, like clinical depression. His wife struggled with all sorts of maladies where she couldn't handle the cold and mud, and she was constantly sick. And their entire life in ministry was sought with trials and difficulties that they had to overcome. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, they were able to overcome every single obstacle and trial and difficulty in their life. And so, Charles Spurgeon, one of the great men of history, his perspective on the difficulty that he faced was this. God is too good to be unkind. He is too wise to be confused. If I cannot trace his hand, I can always trust his heart. Thank you. Love you guys. That was a good word, wasn't it? Yes.
Were you guys encouraged by that? Yes. I was encouraged by it. God is at work in our mess. God is at work in our mess. I loved this message. One of the points that he said that just caught me. In Acts 16, something had been dogging Paul long enough. And then all of a sudden he decides, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to deal with this thing. And he shakes it off. He casts it out. Stand up on your feet with me.